This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I was going to go for a really cheesy open and ask you how you were feeling, and wait to see what words you used, and then let people know that we were going to be talking about feeling words today, but I couldn't bring myself to do it, so I thought I would just do the whole thing by myself. <laughs> but not not bring you into it and embarrass you. I could just embarrass myself. <laughs> it was still pretty smooth. Pretty so we're, smooth. We're going to be talking about feeling words once we get to the writing stuff. But a few weeks ago, we had an episode about a movie that Taylor said uh, presented like a book. And that movie was Nobody. I was like, watch it because it's a tutorial of how to do everything right. And interestingly enough, that very weekend in uh, the neighborhood where we live or the area, maybe all around the world, I don't know, HBO had a free preview weekend and oh. nobody was on that weekend. Oh, oh. So I recorded it. And? Which was awesome. So then um, that weekend, the kids were here and they were napping. The grandkids were here and they were napping. So I thought, I'm going to slip away to the office and watch this movie. And I started watching it, and we talked about so many of the different scenes in the movie uh, that things that might have really surprised me uh, didn't surprise me because <laughs> I knew what was happening, but I still I really appreciate what spoilers. you did say. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm watching the movie, and eventually the kids wake up, Julie pokes her head and gives me the evil eye, which lets me know that it's too loud and we can't have gun, gun battles and screaming and <laughs> that kind of thing going on while we have a five-year-old, a three-year-old running around the house. So I had to turn it off. And then I didn't get a chance to watch it again until about a week later. And I put it on. Did uh, you was, start from the beginning? I did not. I did okay. not. I just, I started, I was probably 40 minutes into it. Okay. And so I just turned it on. The lights were off. Julie was out somewhere. And um, I turned the sound up. And it was amazing. It was such a great movie. I, I got to the end of it. And it's like, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I, I, I can't even explain why, but it, it kept going back to the things that you were talking about in terms of showing respect for the audience by not over-explaining everything. And so, it, do, even do the ending, was... which I will not give away, but uh, I'm sure you remember the ending, Taylor, but it's, it's like the way they handled the ending was so good. It was just a validation, essentially, of everything that they'd done throughout the course of the movie in, in terms of writing. And it was, it was just really a fun movie. Yeah. Um, so, so you've, the not treating your audience as stupid was one of the things that made it good for you. Can you? Like, what differentiated this one from any 
other, and I'm sure you've seen some of those, you know, I think it was, I think it was mostly that not getting beat over the head with this is what's happening. And this is why it was, this is why everything was happening. Just things happened and we got to see them as they happened and we had to figure out why. And no flashbacks, just straight move, just everything right there. Whatever's on the page is right in front of you. Except for those very funny scenes where the people that he had um, damaged, we'll say, were dying, and he's telling them his story, essentially. And then they would die, and he would, yeah, you know, the story would stop. Exactly. And that was hysterical. <laughs> exactly. And it would have been so much funnier if I hadn't known it was coming. But when he started, it like, oh, this guy's going to die in a minute. <laughs> it was <laughs> so, so good. i sorry for the spoilers. But, but you know, there are just so many. You see what I was many... talking about, right? Yes. And there are just so many great scenes, and I, I completely get what you're talking about. You know, the way th- it, the movie presented itself like it was a well-written book. There was a scene, and I don't want to go into details, but there was a scene when he sent the family into the basement. Yes. And then instead of going into a lot of detail about why all of this stuff was, was there... It was just there, you know, he, they just, yeah. he, he just went on with it. He pushed a few buttons, things started to happen. And, um, and then there was this incredible gun battle and, uh, five minutes later, everyone was dead except for him and his family was down in the basement safe. I would say that that is like the apex of show don't tell. Like the battle that followed was the show for why that stuff existed. Mm-hmm. You didn't need to explain it because it was self-evident once you saw all the other things going on around it. And in book language, that would be why. Sometimes you just don't have to over-explain the character's thoughts of how they did this and why they did that because it will become apparent if you... Sh- lay out your scenes, your action sequences, your, um, and I say action, not as like guns and knives, but action as in character and motion. If you lay out that character in motion and show that character in action, then the preparation stuff kind of just, it makes sense sometimes (laughs) in this case, definitely. And I didn't find myself missing any of that. It's, it's like I didn't really understand why some of the things had happened, but I didn't care. It didn't make a difference to the story. I didn't want the story to slow down so that he could explain it. I could just kind of come up with it myself, and, and we could move on with the story. And then a couple of days later, I watched another movie. I don't remember what it was. But it was the opposite, where they over-explained everything, and I just, I, I just wanted to bang my head into the into the arm of the chair as it was happening. It's like, stop doing this, just get on with it. But they couldn't; they just had to keep explaining and explaining and explaining and explaining and explaining. And that was so, not treating your audience like they're intelligent. This brings to mind another movie that I've watched recently that I have thoughts on in terms of storytelling and we don't have space for it right now, but I'm thinking maybe uh, next week or next episode uh, if people are not, or we're not burned out on talking about movies, because really this is a show about writing. Um, But it's something that I feel that would translate 
the uh, things to learn from it that translate into books as well. So um, maybe we can do that next episode. But uh, there's well, just the, so much. That in the meantime, as a really brilliant trans transition, ask me how I feel about that. <laughs> how do you feel about <laughs> that, Steve? <laughs> I think it might be fun. <laughs> now let's get into feeling words. <laughs> okay, so. Um, if I had to title this episode uh, anything, I would be like, what are feeling words and why do we say you have to avoid them? But that's going to kind of our starting place, right? So on this subject, uh, I was still really into the very beginning, the early stages of my own learn to write process when I first became aware of it. And I, I don't really know how I came across it. I think maybe I'd been searching online for writing advice or something. And there was this, I guess, I guess it was a blog post. And it was written by someone who had attended one of Chuck Palahniuk's workshops, like his writing workshops. And it was this sort of breakdown of like the top 10 bits of writing advice from the workshop, top 10 takeaways or something like that. And I really have no idea what the other nine were at this point, like total blanks. But this one, this specific one, it was like these list of words why you, that you should avoid using them and why. And it just stuck with me. And not the specific words, but just this general concept. And so when I was thinking about talking it to, about it today, not being a real big fan of reinventing the wheel, I thought, well, I should probably see if I could find that thing again, like what it was and see what, what was actually being said, because all I have is the takeaway that I've carried with me all of these years. And so I went and I did this search. And the first thing I realized is like, there are a bazillion posts out there specifically discussing Chuck Palahniuk's take of this specific list of words. And it's, it's not just posts repeating this list of words and quoting his advice, but also posts arguing against his advice and others saying that he doesn't take his advice. Like, it's this whole thing out there. So I guess maybe he's like the granddaddy of this discussion or something, because everything points back to his advice. I didn't find the exact piece I was looking for. At least I don't think I did. But I did find one that was written by him himself. And so I think I want to start there. I want to start with what he describes as thinking words. And so like, for whatever reason, I'm not sure, I internalize that concept as feeling words. And it's probably because I don't actually think in words. So to me, thought and feeling, they're kind of somewhat interchangeable when we discuss this internal process of what goes on when a person is thinking. So I tend to use them interchangeably, thought and feeling in this subject. Just don't let that throw you. Whichever terminology works better for you, thinking words, feeling words, whatever. The concept is the same, okay? So what exactly are thinking or feeling words? And I'm going to read you this list of words that everyone tends to quote verbatim, and they include thinks, knows, understands, realizes, believes, wants, remembers, imagines, desires, loves, and hates. And he he puts them like that, but, you know, thought, knew, understood, you know, whatever past, present, all the variants, it's those basic words, right? 
And there are a lot more of them that could be included. And he says the same thing that these, there could be a hundred, there's a hundred more of these, but since those are the words he lists out, then those are the ones you see show up over and over again. So, you know, we'll start there. So his post, it's pretty short. And really what it is, it's a writing exercise. And he approaches this basically as for the next six months, you're not allowed to use any of those words in your writing. That's the assignment. You can't use any of those words in your writing. And he goes on to explain, you know, what that would look like if you couldn't and you had to cross them out and replace them. But the the reasoning behind it is he calls these words thesis statements. And he says they steal power from what follows. And he gives an example. And that example is Brenda knew she'd never make the deadline. And we'll just like verbally underline that word knew. Brenda knew, right? That's one of those thinking slash feeling words that she'd never make the deadline. Traffic was backed up from the bridge, past the first eight or nine exits. Her cell phone battery was dead. And that's the start of this example. And so his basic premise is thinking is abstract. Knowing and believing are intangible. So your story will always be stronger if you just show the physical actions and details of your characters and allow your reader to do the thinking and the knowing and loving and hating. That's a direct quote. That's Chuck. So that kind of gives us a baseline of what thinking, feeling words are. And that specific advice was incredibly helpful to me when I was just starting out. Because when you're first starting out as a writer, there's just so much about storytelling and craft that you haven't internalized and processed in a way that you actually understand it. And when I say understand, I mean like if you needed to turn around and explain it to somebody else, you kind of get this vague sense of, oh, you're not supposed to do this. But the why of it, even if you understand it intellectually, it's only through the hands-on doing that you start to see the difference and feel the difference in your own work. So as a newbie writer, it was incredibly helpful to me because it helped me grasp this larger underlying point about the difference between telling and showing in a way that advice that was maybe less absolute or more nuanced probably wouldn't have because I didn't have the understanding, the baseline conceptual understanding to be able to do anything with the nuance. and. I think the reason it was so helpful to me and obviously so helpful to a lot of other people because it wouldn't turn into a bazillion repetitive articles if it didn't connect and resonate is because so much about good storytelling and strong writing is counterintuitive. And I mean that literally, like good writing is often exactly the opposite of natural intuitive expression. So it's intuition, that natural intuitive way of expressing yourself that tells you to go, suddenly the sky turned red. But anyone who's got even a bit of experience in creating tension and suspense on the page is gonna be like, no, not the suddenly. And that's because in the intuitive, our, our natural way of expression, that's easy. 
It's easy because it's natural. And good craft is hard because it's unnatural. We have to unlearn before we can learn. And that's where this type of advice is coming from. It's the intuition that's telling you to go, she thought about John and remembered what he was like back in the day. And anyone who's spent some time working their craft is going to be like, no, not the thinking and the remembering, because you just need to give the details of what John was like back in the day. So to reiterate Chuck's point, he says, thinking is abstract. Knowing and believing are intangible. Your story will always be stronger if you just show the physical actions and details of your characters and allow your reader to do the thinking and the knowing, the loving and the hating. So that is 100%. I back that. But my advice kind of differs slightly. And it's because that type of instruction, no thinking words at all, it's very cut and dry. And it is incredibly helpful when you're still having to unlearn what's easy and intuitive, but it's not the type of advice that you can use as a hack. Like It's not the type of rule that you can follow always, and that because of following that rule always, your story and your writing will always be stronger for it. There's There are caveats. There are exceptions. And so I thought maybe we could take a look at it a little bit past that basic ground learning level of no thinking words and just see kind of what it looks like from a more balanced perspective. So like right off the bat, we do want to avoid thinking and feeling words when we are inside the character's head or trying to show what a character is thinking or feeling. And we we do want to avoid those for I think maybe two main reasons. And the first one is most of the time, and this is an emphasis on most, feeling and thinking words are redundant. Like we don't need to know that a character is thinking something before we experience what they're thinking. We just need to experience those details of the what. And we don't need to know that they're angry or that they're sad or that they're happy or that they love or they hate a thing before experiencing the inner world, we just need the details that produce those thoughts and feelings. So it becomes redundant to tack on the she thought or she knew before the things that she thought or she knew. So Chuck provides a good example of that in his um, in his post where he, as an example, he says, Brenda knew she'd never make the deadline. Traffic was backed up from the bridge past the first eight or nine exits. Her cell phone battery was dead. At home, the dogs would need to go out. There would be a mess to clean up. Plus, she promised to water the plants for her neighbor. And he says, if nothing else, cut that opening sentence and place it after all the others. In other words, traffic was backed up, first eight or nine exits, blah, 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 blah. She knew she'd never make it, make the deadline. So information first, then her thought. And it's a little bit like somewhat like thought action speech if we don't look at the thought as thought. I just complicated that. Anyway, it does work the way that he's explaining it because that whole traffic backed up, blah, 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 that is thought. And then she knew she'd never make it past the deadline is more like action. So he's saying, you know, cut that opening sentence, place it after the others, but better yet, 
transplant it, which is cut it, put it after, and change it to Brenda would never make the deadline instead of Brenda knew she'd never made the deadline. So if you're new to this or you haven't already learned to work against intuition, it might be difficult to understand the difference between Brenda knew she'd never make the deadline and Brenda would never make the deadline. So I'm going to try and filter it through a hackercraft lens. Brenda knew she'd never, that sits outside Brenda. It's telling us about Brenda because it's telling us what she's thinking. Brenda would never sits inside Brenda. It is showing us the world through her eyes. So instead of being told what Brenda feels, we're given the space to do the feeling on her behalf. Super subtle word choices. But by taking, getting rid of that thinking slash feeling word of new and changing it, just getting rid of it. So it was Brenda knew she would never make. Brenda would never make, right? That's it. You just get rid of those thinking words and you have, bam, strengthened your prose, your your character. You that's that's a stronger characterization right there. So that is what one of the reasons why we avoid these thinking feeling words is it's redundant. You don't need it extra. And then the second reason is that these feeling thinking words, they're often, and again, emphasis on often, they're cheating feeling shortcuts. Because not only do they fail to accomplish what they're supposed to do, which is impart this, what, what your character is feeling and, and get you involved in that. They create these blind spots that make it difficult for you, the one who put them on the page, to see that all the important stuff is still missing. So if you're like, he was really happy that she was coming to the party, you don't realize that you're missing all the details that make him happy that she's coming to the party. And, and so you're just telling your audience what he's feeling instead of allowing the audience to come up with those feelings themselves on his behalf by providing the details. So those are the two main reasons why we really do want to avoid putting those thinking, feeling words in there. And so if you're still working on your craft, if your writing isn't as strong as it should be, if you're still fighting that intu- intuition, then just follow that advice. Hardcore, locate every thinking, feeling word in your pages, delete them, figure out how to say the same thing without using them. Because to be able to break those rules, you've got to understand why you're doing them in the first place. Once you understand that you are diluting the strength of your own writing and you understand how to avoid that, then these thinking feeling words can be the right choice sometimes, right? And it's, it, that's where craft comes into play is knowing when to do that. So I'm going to pull another example. Here's an exception. He's saying, here's how you would take a feeling word that, robs your reader from being able to immerse in the story and here's how you would rewrite it. So his example is waiting for the bus. Mark started to worry about how long the trip would take and his suggestion of maybe a better breakdown reads like this. The schedule said the bus would come at noon, but Mark's watch said it was already 1157. 
You could see all the way down the road as far as the mall and not see a bus. No doubt, the driver was parked at a turnaround, the far end of the line, taking a nap. Or the driver was kicked back asleep and Mark was going to be late. Or worse, the driver was drinking and he'd pull up drunk and charge Mark 75 cents for death in a fiery traffic accident. So I look at this and I analyze that and I go, okay, the first example, waiting for the bus, Mark started to worry about how long the trip would be. That basically just says nothing. Just Mark was worried. The second example shows us neuroticism. Like this guy's like <laughs> catastrophizing every possible thing that could go wrong. That's character, right? But what you'll also notice is that writing without thinking and feeling words takes up a crap ton more space. So if your character is being introduced to this thought or feeling or scenario for the first time, yeah, you need that. You need that to really invoke who that character is and what their true thoughts and feelings are, not just he started to worry. But if your character is revisiting that same concept, uh, worry, concern, want, fear, whatever, and this is like the second or third time that character trait has come up, going into all of that detail, it can become boring as heck really fast. Especially if every time it happens, you've got to walk back through a paragraph of pointless detail. Is a, the point in all of that detail there is character. It is not driving the plot forward. It is not that we know of. does not have anything to do with conflict. It's just pure character. It's showing us what's going on inside the character's head or gut or emotions or whatever. So that's all fine and dandy, but if you're slowing down the plot and the conflict for sake of that type of characterization, it's going to get boring and people are going to stop, start skipping because they've already heard it. They've already seen it. And so in those cases, even your best attempts at, you know, eliminating those feeling words and, you know, showing every little detail, every little concern that's going on in the character's head, that's going to shoot you way past showing and take you straight into navel gazing and boredom. So, yes, the underlying fact, truth, idea behind it is 100% sound. And if you don't know how to tell yet, then just follow that. But once you've started to get the hang of this, just following that, it can actually work against you. I use thinking, feeling words all the gosh darn time. I do. But I use them consciously because I understand how they're not supposed to be used. And the way that I write, I, I spend a lot of time deep inside my characters' heads. Like, it almost feels like you're inside their thoughts with their running mental dialogue sometimes. And that's because I'm not using thinking and feeling words. They're all eliminated. You're just up there right inside their heads. And so sometimes, often, I will use thinking and feeling words as punctuation, as a way to slow down that inner narrative and step outside it. And I especially use it during times of analysis, when I'm building logic ladders 
and I'm trying to slow down the pacing of the logic ladder so that the reader can follow along in the way that the characters are um, building this thought process. So I will use, she knew that they were going to do this. They knew that she was going to do that, which meant blah, 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 blah. And I will use new and wondered and remembered and things like that, not as part of characterization, but as punctuation in a way to, to differentiate between here we're deep inside the character's head. Now let's step back a bit and look at this analysis from more of a distant point of view. So, but I can only do that because I understand the danger and of, of what using those words to substitute for detail can do. And so I, I don't worry about using them. So if somebody was to hear me go, don't use feeling words or thinking words, and then analyze the count, how many times I use them in my manuscripts, they'd be like, well, you don't take your own advice. And there are people who've done that to Chuck. <laughs> There's the whole post out there going, well, this is how often those words are used in general, and this is how much he's using them. So clearly he doesn't take his own advice. They're missing the point. It's not that you can't use them. It's how you use them. And if you don't know how to use them properly, you're going to dull the impact of your writing. But if you do know how to use them properly and choose to use them differently, then you can actually intensify your writing. So that's why I'm saying you can't just take this rule and say it's straight across the board, but it's really also difficult to come up with a hack and say, if this, then, because it's so situational and it depends on the level of skill the person doing this has and how well they understand the difference between one and the other. I say that if I wanted to try and find a hack, a way to hack this, it would be to say that if you've already established a character's frame of mind, you've already got that vivid detail, or if you've already set up a specific idea, plot, point, whatever, then using thinking and feeling words is okay because the setup is already there and you can actually use them as a shortcut in the right way. If that shortcut keeps the pace moving, keeps the conflict going and you're not, you know, cutting out important things. But that's a very, very wordy mouthful <laughs> for a hack. So anyway, that is a little bit about what feeling slash thinking words are, why we want to avoid them, but why sometimes it's also they can be helpful and you need them. And that's what I got. Well, that was that was great. What's the spelling of, of Chuck's last name? Uh, yeah. So I had to Google this because it's P-A-L-A-H-N-I-U-K. All right. And we will have that in the show notes, at least the spelling <laughs> of, of his name, so you don't have to remember that. That was interesting. And I'm, I would, it reminded me of a show we'd done on Show, Don't Tell, where yes. you know we have these hard and fast rules, do this, don't do that, except when it's going to cause trouble. And and. So it seems like the same kind of situation here. You could follow this rule exclusively, but then your stories would get 
longer than necessary, more tedious than necessary and boring. And the same with show, don't tell. Sometimes you just have to, sometimes you just have to tell. Well, this is a subset of show, don't tell. That is, that is ultimately what it's driving at is instead of telling us that the person is sad, show us that the person is sad and tell us that of telling us that the person is angry, show us why the person is angry and let your reader feel that anger for themselves. So it is a subset of show don't tell. So all of the caveats and exemptions that apply to show don't tell also apply to feeling and thinking words. And there we have it. So thank you guys for listening. We will be back with you again next Tuesday. See you guys next week. Thanks for being here.